This is your Planet News Briefing. I'm John Chu. And I'm Ralph Fortune. Our main story coming up is about climate justice. We talk about how climate change impacts social issues, such as gender inequality and racism. But first, your Planet News headlines for this week. In politics this week, Gizmodo reports, at the Golden Globes, climate change steals the show. Celebrities use the stage to instead talk about political issues and more about climate issues. Let's take a look. Russell Crowe could not be here with us tonight because he is at home in Australia protecting his family from the devastating bushfires. He sent along this message in case he won. Make no mistake, the tragedy unfolding in Australia is climate change based. We need to act based on science move our global workforce to renewable energy and respect our planet for the unique and amazing place it is. That way, we all have a future. Thank you. It's great to vote, um, but sometimes we have to take that responsibility on ourselves and make changes and sacrifices in our own lives. And I hope that we can do that. We don't have to take private jets to Palm Springs for the war sometimes or back, please. And I'll try to do better and I hope you will too. In business news this week, The Guardian reports that pension funds are urging Barclays to stop doing business with fossil fuel companies. Since the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement, Barclays is the biggest investor in fossil fuel projects in Europe. 11 pension and investment funds have officially filed a resolution urging Barclays to come up with a plan to phase out investment in lending and underwriting to those fossil fuel companies, in particular to the ones that do not align to the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Barclays' total lending and underwriting to carbon-intensive companies totaled $85 billion between 2015 and 2018. That's 64 billion pounds. Meanwhile, BNP Paribas, one of the competitors, have already stopped doing business with oil and gas companies. In technology news this week, TechCrunch reports, together with portfolio company AMP Robotics, Sidewalk Labs launches recycling pilot in Toronto. This is coming about because China just released a new policy, whereas it once accepted 70% of municipal solid waste generated around the world. Now they're reducing that intake. Cities around the world, such as Paris, London, New York, are getting hurt by this initiative, and the city of Toronto is making a pledge to target 70% reduction in amount of recyclables and organics by 2026. Sidewalk Labs is stepping in to help categorize, sort, and notify consumers about what they're recycling and wasting. What's the catch? Sidewalk Labs is owned by Google. So do you want Google going through your trash? It'd be interesting how they aggregate this data. In science news this week, Sky News reports that astronauts are taking wine with them to outer space. However, it's not for consumption, it's actually for climate change research. The idea being there will be 12 of the same bottles in space for a year and 12 of the same bottles on Earth for a year. The purpose is, is to test its composition and flavors uh, and analyze impact of solar reduction. Why? Well, because the winemaking process is actually very complex. So it involves yeast, bacteria, and other chemical processes, making it ideal for space study, apparently. This effort and research could help scientists understand how to breed perhaps hardier plants that adapt to climate change. The question is, where do we sign up to test and taste this wine after a year in space? Coming up, our main story. How does climate change 
relate to and impact gender equality, racism, and other social inequality issues. All right, so Ralph, before we get to the main feature, just three really quick things I want to start out with. Uh, one being we're recording again at uh, a location where there's a bit of background noise, so I apologize to the audience uh, in advance for any of that. Two, um, as it relates to that as well, we have a new microphone, well, a microphone for the first time, so hopefully uh, the quality of our sound will be much better for all of our listeners. Um, I think we've received really great feedback so far on this podcast and the journey that we're on, and hopefully those who are still with us in this journey. Yeah, keep the feedback coming, please. Yeah, it's been really helpful, and we are, you know, we're investing in this microphone to um, up our game. And lastly, and most importantly, um, a public service announcement uh, around Australia. Our main topic in this episode is not about Australia, but we've talked about it in the past in past episodes through headlines and so forth. But just wanted to say a couple of things in which ways in which you um, you can help. So the Australian Red Cross is accepting donations to its Disaster Relief and Recovery Fund, and we can donate at www.redcross.org.au. There's also an interesting um, organization. If you don't want to donate money, you can actually donate items. This organization is called Give It, spelled G-I-V-I-T, .org.au. And if you go on there, you can see basically what people are requesting in terms of uh, car batteries, fence posts, gas pumps, things that uh, people who have been affected have lost. Uh, and this organization will actually match those those donations as well. All right. So what is climate justice? Rob, this is a term that I've admittedly came across relatively recently and only recently have I gone into the details of what it is. And it really, really took my mind into it. I, I Google and I researched so much about this recently. So just for our listeners to know, Climate justice is a term that's basically used to frame global warming as an ethical and political issue rather than one that is just purely environmental or physical in nature. So if you think about climate change and its impacts, uh, it can be linked to any type of existing injustice. This includes racism, sexism, ableism, the rights of refugees, who are oftentimes uh, fleeing conditions created by countries and companies that are largely responsible for contributing to the crisis. In other words, Climate justice or climate injustice can be characterized as a threat multiplier or climate is a threat multiplier. So any existing injustice that exists today will be exacerbated as a result of the climate crisis. Yeah, I think that's a big point that we've seen that this is definitely a multiplier and we'll show kind of numbers around that as well, um, how those effects have been increased. Um, But first, just a, a disclosure here, uh, you know, basically we are not marginalized, myself and John, um, we're a relative privilege, and this episode isn't meant to prove uh, that we completely understand, uh, you know, how those who are marginalized are feeling uh, and what they're going through. In fact, it's safe to say that we have not and probably will not ever experience what the marginalized have experienced and or are experiencing as a result of the climate crisis. You know, likewise, uh, we will touch on gender inequality, in particular uh, for women of color. Yeah, we are both men. We will never be able to walk in their shoes. Uh, we can't speak on their behalf. Our objective here is to help bring to life some of the struggles that they in particular may be going through as a result of climate change, uh, which are oftentimes made uh, you know, and left out in the center of this discussion. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, basically we'll take this time to kind of do our best to walk in the shoes. Uh, although that we obviously cannot, you know, state, you know, make these statements on any of the, these people's behalf. Yeah. It's a really good disclosure. All right. 70% of carbon emissions are coming from just 100 fossil fuel extractor companies. So the likes of Shell and BP, for example. Um, so I'm starting with that, but on the surface, it doesn't really have anything to do with climate justice, but it does. Um, so my thinking here is that we can recycle as much as we like, but by placing activities like that at the center of action, it it kind of ignores the corporate power and privilege, um, which is at the core of the climate breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, putting the actions on the individuals, it kind of frees up or it kind of lets the corporate powers high a little bit. So... Mm-hmm. In this episode, and also as it relates to climate justice, we must also talk about some of these big, comp- uh, big carbon emitters. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a kind of a one percent. Yeah, like yeah, it's a good point. It's like a one percent uh, type scenario here, where one percent of the the committers are you know are making you know uh, effects on the ninety nine percent. Yeah, uh, and it's similar to like a wealth gap type conversation, isn't it? Yeah, we must we must challenge and, and break this this apart uh, as a collective movement in order to tackle climate change on a larger scale. So this means what we must at, at a high level undo some of the systemic injustices and oppressions. Um, and fundamentally, we simply cannot have climate justice and racial ju- injustice and gender injustice, etc. Uh, throughout history, this system, so to speak, has disproportionately sacrifice people of color in particular and those in the marginalized community in general in favor of profit by the likes of Shell, BP, etc. Hmm. And it's also important to point that, you know, we keep hearing about 2030, uh, the IPCC and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, have these reports. And it's well known now in this community that 2030 is the year that we must stem climate change. And it says that basically what they're saying is the planet will reach the point of no return or the crucial threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels by 2030. So we must, that's a target that is well known in this community um, and it's been in the media a lot, but that's only 10 years from now, um, by the way. But, but, and this is a big but, the marginalized communities around the world are disproportionately on these front lines. They experience mm-hmm. the impacts of droughts, um, food insecurity, and so forth, as well as you know fossil fuel extractive operations with displacement through mm-hmm. grabbing their lands and so forth. So this is happening right now. Is the point that I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not happening in ten years' time. Um, so that's uh, a good point. These these are the people on the front lines seeing yeah. these effects right now, right? Exactly. The flooding, the droughts, and the multiplying effect of these, the fires as well. It may not be experienced right now in a large scale by the global north, so that's categorized as the economically developed societies, but it is being felt and experienced at this very moment by the global south, which is the economically less developed societies, uh, who actually, as we mentioned, have contributed the least amount to climate change, but are already feeling the most of the brunt of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of an ironic point here, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That uh, the wealthier countries uh, are are contributing the most, 
um, but feeling the less, less, least of the brunt. And then another ironic point about this as well is that a lot of like these developing um, countries, they have to be committing more uh, greenhouse gases basically to improve, to gain uh, economic value. Yeah. Whereas the, the ones, you know, the, the, the North North countries or the ones that are already at high economic value have to start reducing. So I think it is also fair to point out that you can't hold all uh, kind of areas or economic status is equal in terms of their contribution of greenhouse gases. Exactly. And I'll just add on to that, that the global North, the countries who are emitting the most, they're much, they're controlling the narrative and the policies much more than the global South. So you have, it's kind of like a modern day, uh, colonialism or imperialism happening, right? So like you have the more developed countries who are emitting more, causing more of the climate change, also setting the rules and policies for how we're going to tackle the climate change. And so you think about who's left out in those discussions, more than likely representatives are going to be, you know, much more powerful in those developed nations at the table compared to the ones that are least developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you hear a lot of things that the UN basically saying, these small island countries are complaining, saying, look, you, what your policies are affecting us and we don't have a voice. Um, and you know, it's basically true. Yeah. And we'll, we'll bring up some numbers as well around that. Let's go right into that, right? Yeah. Um, according to the World Health Organization, estimates that um, this is all about climate change. Um, and what the WHO estimate is that the climate crisis will cause an additional 250,000 deaths per year between 2030 and 2050. 250,000 deaths. And in particular areas with poor healthcare infrastructure, and that's oftentimes in those nations that are developing, um, they will be the least able to cope with catastrophic effects of climate change. So things like heat waves, droughts, severe systems, outbreaks of waterborne diseases. So not only are they currently, um, it's, it's just, a, just a vicious cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're initially, um, you know, the inequality in, in, in their lives or um, make them already disadvantaged and they are going to suffer disproportionately from the efforts of climate change, which is going to result in more inequality. Um, and, and sort of, and this is going to happen through uh, just because of the increased exposure that they already have inherently and their increased susceptibility and, and to, you know, to, to the damage that's going to be caused by climate change. That's already being caused by climate change. And then make things worse, you know, their ability to cope and recover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some other, other stats here. This is um, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, interesting one in terms of we're talking about like the economic growth. They're stating that uh, India's per capita GDP is approximately 30% lower than it would have been without warming. Uh, and for Brazil, their per capita GDP has taken a 25% hit as a result of climate change. Um, and then to our point, again, eight out of 10 countries most affected by extreme weather events, such as hurricanes and monsoon rains, uh, you know, which affect flooding and damages, basically. Between the 1998 and 2017, uh, were these eight out of 10 were uh, all developing nations with low uh, or low middle income. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned 
those those island countries, um, people living there, um, I mean, those island nations are the most vulnerable to severe storms, sea level rise, storm surges as a result of climate change, right? And also indigenous populations um, who rely on subsistence farming practices uh, for food, for example, um, they will have limited options for adapting as climate change threatens their food sources. Yeah. And so we talk about this this gap as well, um, the equivalent, a, a wealth gap equivalent, right? What what would be the what would you call this for the climate uh, climate gap? But it's not climate really. It's climate. It's, a, uh, it's sort of an economic gap as well. It's right? almost an economic. So it's a climate wealth gap. Yeah, we got We got to find a term for this. What do you think? <laughs> I like climate wealth gap. I think that that's. I mean, those words are exactly what climate it is. Climate wealth gap. Yeah. All right. Let's go climate wealth gap. So according to a the 2019 Stanford study, um, the climate wealth gap has increased 25% um, due to global warming. So yeah. that's interesting that they're, they're actually starting to quantify this this gap that's happening. Uh, this is saying between world's richest and poorest countries. Wow. And, and then again, uh, from 1961 to 2010, global warming decreased the wealth per person in the world's poorest countries by uh, 17 to 30%. It's coming from this study. Yeah, and Rob, and just in addition to that, uh, according to Mercy Corps, uh, more than 1.3 billion people live on deteriorating agricultural land. So this puts them at risk of depleted harvests that can then lead to worsening hunger, poverty, and displacement. Um, we should also mention soil, right? Um, it's being lost between 10 and 100 times faster than it is forming. Yeah, that's a big point. Uh, because... And it's a big point because uh, Mercy Corps states that three out of four people living in poverty rely on agricultural survival. Um, so yeah, if, if you know if agriculture is getting hit the most by it, and the soil is not regaining uh, as it needs to be, this is you know we're going into these things that we talked about in the past about uh, new fertilizer initiatives and things like that. And these, this kind of technology needs to kind of increase actually and to help soil come back. And how does this, so sort of the theme of this episode is how these things are interrelated from mm-hmm. a social social studies perspective in general. And we should get into conflict. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so how does this called conflict? So this is, this is really fascinating to me as well in terms of um, it's happening a lot in, in kind of developing nations. Um, but basically, Mercy Corps pulls this out as stating that uh, conflict is the primary cause of poverty and suffering in the world today. Uh, and it's exacerbated, uh, exacerbated by climate change, right? It's this, this multiplier effect that's, that is actually, we don't know if it's a cause, maybe a cause or effect of, of conflict, but it's definitely a multiplier. Uh, we, can, we can point to that. Um, and examples of this are in the Dominican Republic of Congo. Um, basically, this has changed kind of the timing and magnitude of rainfall. Uh, this has changed their food production and it's been increasing competition for for like arable land. So this land that's, you know, the soil issue, this land is able to use. Uh, so it's been, you know, contributing to ethic and, uh, you know, ethical tensions, essentially. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, not ethical tensions, but ethnic tensions and conflict. It's yeah. crazy. And I... In the previous episode, I talked about um, Nigeria and Uganda and at the border and how there's like water scarcity or drought 
that's actually causing the animals to attack the humans there. But this is in the similar light to that, but not about animals. Is um, in the border of Kenya and Uganda, um, uh, there's there's a, a there's a stretch of land that's actually um, in considered central of Nigeria. But uh, the resource scarcity there has been a long-standing challenge. Right, um, climate change has further reduced pasture and water resources and it's been increasing competition and resulting in violence such as cattle raiding so you can see some of the conflict internally within such a small region as a result of climate change there's another yeah there's another one i want to mention that it's not mentioned uh, by mercy corps but um i've heard i've read it before and so i don't have the the facts to back it but there's a there's a concept around um actually syria and how uh, Syrian rebels against their government was possibly uh, multiplied, right? And, and that conflict had been multiplied by a large drought that was happening there. Yeah. Uh, where people, you know, it makes people rise up. It makes people, you know, kind of fight because they're up against the corner, essentially. Yeah. Super, super interesting point. Um, because the Syria conflict is relatively recent, at least, and people that are probably listening to this podcast, you may you know, have heard about what's happening there. But uh, a lot of people think it's because of the uprising. But you have to keep in mind, just to your point, um, I think it was a period of six months, uh, sorry, six years of drought hmm. before the conflict started. So you're talking about the farmers from the rural areas starting to move into the urban areas. And there was that civil conflict already happening between hmm. the rich and the poor happening inside Syria. Um, and then, so... The climate change has caused that drought, and the drought has caused internal conflicts or mm-hmm. internally, and then it leads to this all-out civil civil conflict, mm-hmm. um, yeah. uprising as a government, yeah. and then a dictator coming in and and send you know using poison gas on on people. So it's, <laughs> it's, horrible. it's it's horrible, and it's and this is one where actually people Westerners might hear more of, right? We mm-hmm. don't necessarily hear too. We hear about things like conflicts in Uganda and stuff, but uh, we have. A lot more in the news in Syria and in Middle East, essentially, right? But the reason why we hear so much about it, and, and you know, just so our listeners know, we we're we're based in Europe or in the UK specifically, which is still part of Europe at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, we we see this a bit more on a day to day basis because you do see refugees, you do see migrants, mm-hmm. and you see the resistance all across Europe to this this migration of Syrians. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, borders with Greece, already after Germany and so forth. So if anything, this is a reflection or this is an indicator of what climate change would do to mm-hmm. civilizations and countries where there's going to be mass migration. And yep. all of the the the, um, the pain that you're going to get from politics in terms of people not wanting to accept immigrants and close their borders. And it's just it's just heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so what about action, Sean? I know this is a tough one, uh, and we, we, we know uh, our listeners want to hear actions, they want to hear stats, uh, and we'll try to get into this. Um, it's obviously a hard one here, but there, you know, what are the things we can think about? Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll get some actions, but uh, this episode, our, our objective as well is to educate, because mm-hmm. for, for us, climate justice was something that was new, despite us researching and being passionate about this climate space and trying to solve, help solve issues. Um, so we've just recently gone into the details of this and we thought we'll share with you. So hopefully now 
in addition to actions, it's educational for you as well. But in, in order to, to get to some of these actions, I just wanted to start out with, with a little bit more context. So this is in the words of Asad Rabman, who is actually executive director of a, of a charity, a global justice charity called Water on Want. He's, uh, he's quite well known, um, featured in The Guardian and so forth. But he said, this is quote, at the core of this is the need to unlearn and decenter the white gaze of colonialism and imperialism, which the global north's exist, current existence is based upon. Power needs to be a part of our climate change narratives because it cannot be understood without placing it within the context of European colonialism, the slave trade, and the imperialist invasions of Iraq and Iran for fossil fuel reserves. That's that's pretty heavy. So mm-hmm. he's he's suggesting that these colonial and imperial legacies have basically continued to shape power relations across the world, making climate change organizing intimately bound up with systemic racism. Well, that's hard. To, yeah, that's hard to unpack there, isn't it? Yeah. And he, he, he goes on to say here to ignore this is to fall into the trap of depoliticizing, for example, the rhetoric of certain groups that focus on the extinction of humanity as the main focus and call to action. Not only does this focus silence and marginalize the experiences of those who are already feeling the impacts of climate change in the global south, but by doing so, it creates a hierarchy in which we only start to take notice once the lives of those in the global north are being impacted. So this kind of goes into hmm. similar to what we said before. Um, the global north, you know, largely in charge of the narrative and policies, or not in charge, but they're largely going to be more influential than the south. Yeah. And that's a good point. It's, it's now only becoming uh, relevant to us in the global north, so we're talking about it, right? Yeah, but, you know, what the global north may experience in 10 years' time, probably less, probably more, I don't know, mm-hmm. what they may experience by 2030 is what's already been experienced right. now by the global south. Right. So to overcome this, um, some actions. Um, we believe... <laughs> The climate movement really does need to recognize the impacts of uh, climate change as they're happening now in the global south. So um, something that's a bit more fair and equal, um, that doesn't see fossil fuel divestment as an endpoint, but sees the opportunity and potential of more community energy and a democratized uh, system through reinvestment that also considers the voices and representatives from the marginalized communities. and I also want to say that, you know, just tying back to the uh, fossil fuel extractors and big companies like e, uh, BP and Exxon, but we need the polluters to pay as well. I think that's a fair action. Um, and for corporate powers to be as undone as possible and as quickly as possible, because the destructive operations of such companies, um, they oftentimes take place in the global south, um, where people there are resisting every day. We also need folks in the global north and representatives there to be on the ground with the global south to take on and protest those companies. Uh, that is solidarity. Yeah, interesting. I'd be wondering um, if you say that what how how influential Extinction Rebellion is in the global south, right? Yeah. You hear? I think they did. They had a pretty good movement in Brazil, maybe or. I don't know if that that's kind of on the on the edge there. Yeah. Obviously, Brazil is is, is uh, pretty developed, but yeah, and it's not just extinction rebellion. Like I, after, like extinction rebellion has done a really great job in the past few months of bringing movements awareness, yeah, yeah and, and awareness as an option. But there's been stuff before extinction rebellion, like Greenpeace and mm-hmm. uh, other types of movements. 
Um, and as sort of my, you know, personal action to this as well, it, it would be great if everyone can just start micro movements every single day. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we just kind of, um, threw out a lot of facts and a lot of, um, positions about climate justice, social inequality, and how, you know, one is going to exacerbate the other. Um, and we've armed you with all this information and it would be great if everybody can start some sort of a micro movement on a daily basis to talk about some of these facts and increase awareness from one person to another. So, you, you know, you could be in office at the water cooler just talking about this and mm. it'll increase awareness for one person and maybe that person will tell another and do the same to another. How do you, how do you expand that to the global South? To the global south, to explain, uh, yeah. Well, they're they're the ones already experiencing it, so they don't want to talk about it. They want action, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's. But you're saying, and basically, you're saying we need to take uh, you know, take learnings from the global south and bring it to the north, right? Because they're not educated about the who's on the front line yeah. right now, right? Is that kind of how you're how you're explaining it in terms of that micro movements here, right? No, I I was saying people, yeah. So people here who like people like you and I mm -hmm. who now know about these facts about the global stuff, we talk about it and try mm -hmm. to inspire others to learn more and take action. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately that doesn't help the global South in a fast enough way, but action starts somewhere. Right. Mm -hmm. um, right. And then that comes down to voting, doesn't it? I mean, this is always going to yeah. be kind of the, the next steps. Always, always. Um, so uh, we talked about, we, we're suggesting in terms of actions to increase your voice through movements. Uh, so be inspired by and take action like the exhausted youths, like the Greta Thunberg of the world, um, overworked scientists and grieving activists. You know, let's, let's, let's all be one of those and be inspired by them uh, because we should treat this with extreme urgency. We should treat the health and wellness of the indigenous people and women of color and other, you know, low income communities. Um, you know, we should treat their health risks and, and, and insecurities as sort of um, our health risks and our problems as well. Yeah. It's a leading indicator. Yeah. Let's get into traffic lights. Yep. I think um, this has already been such a very informative um, podcast so far. So my, um, my read is that, uh, this is quite controversial, you know, to to have words like colonialism and imperialism, and you know, uh, it have 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 sort of a sort of a what some people may perceive as sort of a blame game. I I think that my read is that some folks do not see the realities of the struggles within the global South, and therefore they're not as empathetic uh, or not empathetic at all. And I think that's a huge red because if you have such a contrasting, such a dichotomy of, you know, views of the same issue that impacts everyone, that that's just not fair. And this has already been proven that um, that it that it shouldn't work this way. Um, so um, my red is the fact that there's going to be opposing views of a lot of the things that's being shared mm -hmm. on this podcast and this 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 uh, um, concept of climate justice in general. My yellow is, um, you know, you, you kind of mentioned this earlier, uh, those marginalized, um, and so those marginalized in the global north, so folks like, I don't know, um, those who, for example, in the U.S. that were displaced as a result of Hurricane Katrina, mm -hmm. you know, that's a marginalized group, but they're in the global north. So mm -hmm. so those groups, in, in particular, um, African-American women and communities in the U.S. and Latino Americans and so forth, 
you know, they're marginalized in the global north. So those communities who are going to hit harder, uh, hardest and earlier, likely be, uh, compared to, to, you know, their more uh, wealthy counterparts, uh, they, as a yellow, they can start to look at their experiences of those marginalized in the global south. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, for a glimpse of their potential fate. You yeah. know, and I'm trying to take actions accordingly, prepare for it, and probably lessen suffering as much as possible. It's just mm-hmm. a kind of a foresight of what's going to happen. Yeah, or yeah, or hopefully the the governments that ha- that get hit by these storms or flooding, yeah, will be prepared for that and and actually help those individuals, right? Yeah. My green is really interesting. So EPA, uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., they have a tool called Environmental Justice Tool uh, or Environmental Justice Screening Tool, so EJ Screen Tool. Um, and the link here is just epa.gov slash EJ Screen. And this is an online resource free for anyone to use that actually you can enter your location and it tells you the climate risk of where you're at. So it's got heat maps, it's got information about you know the nearest landfills close to you because that stuff impacts your well-being as well and it's um a lot Amazing. of times yeah and then it, climate risk um uh, sea level rise so there's this tool that is great for everyone to use to see how much at risk that they are currently at and the reason why i have that as green is, is because that's the type of tool that you can use when you start your own micro movement and have facts um that mm-hmm. are that have proper sources. And if you want to have your um, conversations with other folks and, you know, try to educate them, you can point them to this, this, um, this source. Um, and it just has such an amazing amount of data and resources uh, to make the case that, hey, you know, climate justice or climate injustice is real. And we must take actions to ensure that there is climate justice. So my green is, is just that the EPA's EJ screen tool. Uh, for my traffic lights, red is really kind of the the awareness around the global south, global south versus global north. That kind of that idea, um, and so this is a great episode for that to kind of start getting educated on there. But also, additionally, um, kind of our the the language now in terms of uh, discourse, global discourse that we have around wokeness, right? Uh, <laughs> obviously, this this uh, podcast will be kind of it. it it could be criticized for being too woke or something, right? <laughs> too woke. So, in, in in that sense, that this is this is in the dialogue, right? Yeah, and this is absolutely. this is in the discourse. So, it's weird that yeah that that would come up, but yeah. it's just kind of a thing that I wanted to throw in there. Yeah. Um, yellow um, is for this understanding of the connection of of or multiplier basically of conflict and climate crisis i think this is super fascinating concept i think we're going to start hearing even more about this actually um and yellow because it's just kind of coming out in terms of a understanding um but yeah definitely one to watch and then green for me is voting um we we always come back to this one because it is the most impactful one that you can do and in the past episodes we even you know go into it saying for voting for a lot of people, especially in the U.S., it's it's mainly thought about presidential voting. And even in presidential voting, there is so little turnout and numbers. Mm-hmm. But I know in the past that I voted for presidents but haven't voted for local council members or yeah, governors or representatives. And that's where you're actually going to have better impact and more. It's That is so important for this uh, climate crisis movement because... 
um, if we, we go into it, even like a council members and stuff that you can vote for that can actually uh, impact having more uh, tr- electric charging stations for vehicles or public transportation, better funding for public transportation. Like that's going to make a way more effect and you have that, that possibility. Um, and we were even discussing like, you know, at this point in time, people can, uh, can run for yeah. these, these positions. You tend to forget that, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and so even in the past halt in this holiday, uh, I was at my hometown and one of my peers is, has, has run and is now like a council member or something. No way. And, and yeah, in the community. And <laughs> it's just amazing. And so, uh, shout out to Juan Martinez. So All right, Juan. <laughs> yeah. So that, that is, that's real action. Um, and, if he was, you know, if he was passionate, or if if his st- constituents were passionate about this this topic as well, he could, you know, make real change in, in that community around this topic. Um, so yeah, don't don't think that uh, yeah you can't do that as well. Uh, I think that's a really important point to make. That's a really really good point. I agree. And for those who are not you know old enough or privileged enough, I guess, uh, or, um, mm-hmm. to to go run for an office. Uh, you can obviously learn about your candidates, just like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, um, for those who are even younger, maybe you can want to start to aspire to become somebody who uh, can run for an office. So you can mm-hmm. do what you're in your academics, uh, in your learnings and trainings, and then you know be motivated by a potential career in this space where you can make a difference later on. Definitely. And that is this week's Your Planet News Briefing. I'm Ralph Forgen. I'm John Chu. Thanks for listening. 